This is the All Sports Podcast devoted to your favorite teams in North Texas. Welcome to Ballsy, a production of the Dallas Morning News and Sports Day. Our weekly show is proudly hosted. Okay, strike that. Our show is hosted by Kevin Sherrington, Evan Grant, and myself. I'm David Moore, and who knows, maybe we'll have a special guest or two along the way. Catch other episodes by subscribing to the Ballsy Podcast on iTunes. We're also on social media. Just search Ballsy Podcast on Facebook and Twitter, and you'll be notified of the latest episode. Don't forget, it's Ballsy with a Z. Are you ready, sports fans? Ballsy starts now. Hello, everybody. Welcome into Ballsy, the Sports Day DFW Dallas Morning News Sports Podcast. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by David Moore. Hello, David. So happy to be back with you, Kevin. Oh, David, it's great, isn't it? And it's a yeah, lovely it day. So it's, it's all it's a lovely spring day. Well, maybe not. It's a little it's a little on the brisk side, at least down here. Uh, and Evan Grant, hi, Evan. It's gray down here. Great, now you're in Dallas. You're in Dallas. I'm in Dallas. David's up in Coppell. You see the world in grays, though, don't you, Evan? Different shades. Different I, shades. As, as my stepdaughter told me during the pandemic, I have taken the. Uh, my fashion sense has been to wear the grout fit, all gray <laughs> outfits. <laughs> wow, grout. That's that's nice. big in Paris. You'll fit right in. They're big yeah. in the neutral. The grout fit. Well, it's not oh. like wearing all brown like you were a UPS driver or anything else. <laughs> yeah. Do we know any UPS drivers? Well, we're trying to figure that out. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. That's a good big. chance. That's how I finished my career, I think. Yeah. No kidding. Which could be any day now. I loved it. Remember, remember when uh, ESPN came up with, with some kind of uh, new gimmick and they all were wearing black leather jackets. Um, and, uh, and, and the, and the uh, ESPN host who went on to do politics, what was his name? Keith uh, Olbermann. Keith Olbermann. Keith Olbermann comes on, and the first thing he said was, welcome to the end of our careers. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I've always thought about it entertained doing something like that. But anyway, a lot of people could say we've already reached that point. But anyway, we're, we're, we're going to be up and uh, about, you, about all that. You, there was a point where we had uh, Dallas Morning News sports like polo shirts that we were required to wear like on every TV appearance. <laughs> Well, I, I think I believe there there's a story too that at one point in time there was a discussion about Dallas Morning News Blazers. Yes, there was. There was. Oh man, <laughs> Dave used to you know Dave Smith, our former uh, the the originator of Sports Day uh, and our our fearless leader used to always complain about how we were dressed. You know, because you know especially Dan Barrero would show up like in you know a fifty year old sweatshirt every day. And uh, I, I always thought that we what we should have done was ha all rented tuxes and had a picture taken of all of us and given that to Dave. It would have made him so happy because he was constantly complaining about how we were dressed. I don't know why it bothered him so much. but I brought anyway. up the clothing allowance, but that didn't seem to go over. <laughs> no, I don't think so either. All right. Well, we had a little game yesterday or Sunday, actually, that was uh, about the uh, – um, uh, two teams, uh, one from the uh, AFC and one from the NFC. The AFC team actually did not show up, uh, and so it was a, uh, a, a host of imposters who played against Tampa Bay and gave Tom Brady his seventh Super Bowl, which gives him more NFL championships than any franchise in the NFL. 
seven. Uh, the uh, the Patriots, of course, have six, uh, and all of those were Tom Brady related, as we as we know. Uh, a tremendous game uh, for Tom Brady and the Bucks in general. Not just the offense; their their defense played great. Uh, and uh, and I we all should have taken that into consideration, David, because all of us picked the the uh, Chiefs to win. Uh, everybody always thinks that's a conspiracy when we do that kind of thing. Uh, but anyway, a huge mistake on our part. Well, let me say one: there was an editing mistake. I actually picked Tampa Bay, and the editor screwed it up. So I'd like to point that out. I'm, I'm sure a correction will be run soon. Two: I believe every time we've all been in agreement, regardless of what the game is, it never has turned out that way. Well, that's what, it's always won. that's what fans always say anyway. <laughs> oh, you guys are all idiots. Well, we may be idiots, but yes. we're not. It's but not for a different couple, reasons than what you're choosing right. to pick. Them. We're not all getting together and making these picks. I honestly don't think that anybody from a pure football standpoint really took into account missing both those tackles. But three plays into the game, it seemed like it was very, very evident that there were going to be an awful lot of problems for the Chiefs. And I, I think we knew that that Tampa Bay defense was very good. I, we had, I had talked last week about their ability to, to create takeaways, but with nobody to block them whatsoever, I, I – I just felt sorry for Patrick Mahomes all, all evening. Yeah, it looked like a Cowboys game. Uh, the, the, it was worse than a Cowboy game, man. I, I, I don't I don't believe – I would like to know how many times that Mahomes dropped back and had the standard three seconds, you know, to stand in the pocket. Just to stand in the pocket, not to move, but just to stand back there. I, I, I would believe it was less than four times. He never had a chance to set his feet, never. Yeah, and, and, and so he's on the move the rest of the time. And then, you know, I, I really believe sometimes, and this is what happens in the Super Bowl, I believe, a lot. When one team feels like, oh, my gosh, we've gotten out coached here. You know, they're doing something we're not prepared for, and this is a huge game. I think you see that more in the Super Bowl than you do any other game uh, because it's so big. If a team feels like it has been outmaneuvered uh, or being outplayed, it just has a tendency to, to snowball a lot faster than it does in the rest of them. And, and when you watch that game and see Kelsey drop that uh, first, that wide open first down catch early in the game, where if he makes that catch, they're, you know, they're, they're moving the chains. Things are going, things are happening. You, you're not just automatically punting, you know. Uh, he drops that one. Uh, Tyreek Hill drops the, where, where you got two guys, receivers standing right next to each other. But still, Tyreek lets that ball hit on his helmet, misses it, goes right through his hands. That might have been a touchdown. Then, of course, the what would have been the greatest completion, the greatest pass in the history of not just the NFL but football where uh, we see Patrick Mahomes scramble to his right, get tripped. He is parallel with the ground and flips that ball 30 yards to the end zone to Daryl Williams who lets it doink off of his face mask and and uh, and no receptions that and that would have been a touchdown. Now I don't think even even with those three catches, they're still not going to win. That's fourteen points, and maybe who knows with another one, it's it's not going to be enough probably at that point. But at least it's competitive. At least it's keeping the Chiefs feeling like we're still in this. We can we can still do something here, and they rally. I, I've seen a lot of people say, "Oh, see Patrick Mahomes." I saw one a guy. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and call. Uh, Ted out for this. Ted Ganji, who has uh, been in the local media for a long time, worked at the ticket, worked for us, did a lot of things, say that there's a lot of grab ass 
in Patrick Mahomes' game, and it came back to bite him in this one. It's like, you got to be kidding me, right? I mean, I'm not, I I believe probably there were times in that game Mahomes could have made better reads at the the line of scrimmage and maybe gotten them out of some of the things that uh, the Chiefs were trying to, that the Bucs were trying to do on defense, but the Bucs weren't blitzing much either. They were just sending their standard four-man. I mean, they, they like to blitz a lot normally. They were not doing it in this game. So I'm not sure how much he could have changed things at the line of scrimmage, and maybe maybe he could have done more than what we saw. But that's a that was a case of a guy scrambling for his life, trying to make something happen on a, for a team that could get nothing going. Well, numbers I saw, I think it was like there were he was under pressure thirty either thirty nine or forty times. There was one that was uh, a bit questionable uh, by the people who chart these things. So it was thirty nine or forty uh, that he was under pressure. That is the most in an NFL playoff game in the last five years that any one quarterback has been under pressure. That is more than double the most that Patrick Mahomes has ever been under pressure in one game. And second was he was he was hurried 17 times, and that was in the Tampa Bay game earlier this year. Really? So, uh, yeah, the, the, the Buccaneers front, we did not take into account enough the two weeks that Tampa Bay had to prepare to attack uh, a, a compromised offensive line for Kansas City. But if you want to go beyond that a little bit, and, and one, I mean, what Mahomes would have been sacked nine times if he didn't have an incredible arm to just make throws down the field to prevent an intentional grounding or get out of a sack from angles that no other quarterback could make those throws from. So, I mean, that, that's another element. They could have lost a lot of more yardage than they did. But, you know, I came out of that game, and every year, you know, locally, I think uh, Cowboy fans watch the Super Bowl and say, okay, how do the Cowboys stack up to these two teams? How, how far away are they? And at any time in the last 10 years, have you come away from this game thinking the Cowboys are farther away than what they are right now? probably not uh, probably not because just because they they don't have I, I think they're they're closer offensively you know, as long as you get those offensive linemen back I think the big problem you know, for the for me is that if you look at that defensive line uh, of of Tampa Bay I mean listen Tom Brady played great he, he was Tom Brady he did all the things that he normally does and what what Tyron Matthew was thinking getting into it with Brady I love the the tweet from Stephen A Smith where he said that a former Patriot had texted him and said, you know, that the, the honey badger has made a huge mistake here. You know, he said, you do not want to poke the bear uh, and and just gets him all riled up, which you, which is amazing to me that he still has that kind of competitive juices at 43. Um, but that defense was just great. I mean, that's and that's Todd Bowles defense, former uh, Cowboys uh, secondary coach back in the 2000s, uh, who did a tremendous job, uh, you know, building that defense. But, you know, we look at the that front four of them, and one of those guys is going to be a free agent uh, now in Dominican Sioux. Uh, and that's the – to me, that's the issue with the Cowboys right now is that they've got problems at all three levels, right? You know, at, at, at uh, in the line, at linebacker, and in the secondary. They're just not – you know, other than Demarcus Lawrence and occasionally Randy Gregory – uh, there have just not been playmakers at those three positions or those three levels the last two years. Uh, and 
they to me they well, who, have who on the to Cowboys start. defense could start for Tampa Bay in that game? Uh, maybe Lawrence. Uh, I, I think Lawrence could, uh, and probably that's about it. I mean, Lawrence could. He, he's he's a really good player. He's a top five so defensive one. end. So one yeah. out of the eleven. And, and to sure. me, that's where look. Everyone knows they have to do heavy lifting on the defensive side of the ball. So so then the question is, when you're asking about how far away the Cowboys are from a Super Bowl, then let's dig in a little deeper on that. One, can they improve enough defensively? to get to the level of Tampa Bay going into next season. No way in the world. Two, can they improve enough defensively to get to Kansas City's level? And I'm not even sure if that's possible for them in this offseason. You know, I, I'm going to disagree with that. I, I think that they can if they make the right kind of moves. And I'd like to see what uh, Dan Quinn's defense can do. Uh, I'd like to see if he can, first of all, implement a defense, uh, which Mike Nolan couldn't do. He couldn't. Evan can it. tell you what his defense did in the Super Bowl a few years ago. Well, that's true. Uh, I, 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 I'd like to see what he does to, to, if he can do whatever needs to be done to resurrect the careers of Jalen Smith and Leighton Vanderish, which sounds ridiculous to say. They've only been in the league two and three years. <laughs> two of their uh, youngest players. <laughs> two of their youngest players trying to resurrect their careers already. Um, uh, I, you know, it's interesting to me. We, we take a lot of shots at Jalen Smith. And I, I think probably because he celebrates so much and he just bothers everybody. It's like, you know, come on, man. You can't be celebrating, at, you know, after you've chased this guy down 15 yards downfield. Um, and, and, but Leighton Vanderich's biggest problem, he just can't stay, uh, you know, healthy. Um, but I, I like, I, I feel like there's a, there is something there with those two guys. Now, whether you want to, you know, frankly, whether you really want to do that with Jalen Smith or not, these are issues to me because you can get out of his contract now if you want to. Uh, I, I think I would get out of his contract if I was going to draft a linebacker uh, in, in the draft this year and <clears throat> see if I could uh, do that. But they're not going to do that. Jerry's not going to move on from Jalen Smith. Uh, just like I wouldn't have a problem on the offensive side if they decide to move on from Amari Cooper. And I know that sounds crazy because I, I was one of the guys who really pounded on them that they need to make this trade. But he's going to make $22 million this year. And I don't know that you see enough separation between what he does and what C.D. Lamb does and what Michael Gallup does. Um, I think he's – I think technically – He's better than both of the other two uh, from a route running standpoint and depend, you know, that sort of thing. But, you know, is he, he's making $22 million. I think Michael Gallup's going to make what he's, or at least he was making about one and a half. Uh, CeeDee Lamb probably making a little bit more than that. That's a, that's a huge difference on the salary scale. Yeah. The, the, that was structured. Dallas can get out from under like all the guaranteed money on, Cooper after 2021, which is when then you have to decide how much you're going to pay Gallup. And so um, I don't think you're going to see Cooper this year. I think it's going to be next year. Um, do you think the Cowboys gonna... would do that, though? If he's a thousand yard receive season, do you think that Jerry would actually move on from him? If it's a thousand yard season. They have like, their eight and eight again, and they don't win a bad division. Uh, and then it'll be three consecutive years out of the playoffs, and they go, our defense is still bad. We need to spend money on the defensive side of the ball. Yes, I do. Yeah. I, I, I think that's why they structured the contract that way. But, again, that doesn't address the offensive uh, 
defense, offensive defensive imbalance you have going into this offseason. And you know, we haven't even gotten to Dak in his contract yet. And yeah. Um, yeah, you can move on from Cooper, but you can move on from him next year free and clear. Uh, mm-hmm. You would still have dead money this year. Now, yeah. it would still give you a little bit more room, but uh, look, right or wrong, I think the Cowboys are just going to say, you know what, uh, we're going to pick up where we thought we had left off back in 2020. You know, that 2021 is going to be the season we envisioned we have, only there will be a lot of young players who got, you know, time, playing time last year, so we'll actually be better. Um, I don't think that's going to work out for them, but I, I think that's uh, – what we're going to see here. And I know we've gone all over the place, but, but here's another one to me on this game. And okay. We know the, the overriding thing right now is Dak's contract. Well, okay. Dak is 27 years old. The quarterback who just won the Super Bowl is 43. Now factor that in quarterbacks are playing longer. If you really think Dak is your con, you know, your franchise quarterback, he can play another 13 to 15 years. Now, doesn't that influence what these negotiations are about when you're looking at it that way? And, and it's, to me, it's just, um, they have so much spinning now. They've got to, they've got to sift through all of this and, and actually lock on to something. And uh, it's going to be hard. David, I got to tell you, I don't think I could take another 13 to 15 years of this Dak controversy. You know, <laughs> you know well, it, just, it just wears me out. Yeah. You know, it, it wears me out. I, I write something about Dak and then I get all these emails. And, you know, it's just like, come on. You know, it's just, it's too much. Polarizing figure in, in, in the sports universe here in DFW. But I, I, I just, I need to step back for a second to something both of you guys, I think, Kevin, you said it a few minutes ago. You mentioned there's, I, I, you don't see the Cowboys on the level with Tampa Bay next year. And not sure that you see them on the same level with Kansas City. And we're talking about the two Super Bowl teams. And we have for, for years said that, look, the Cowboys have got to reach the Super Bowl. But my question is, based on where they are right now and what they're doing, is measuring them against Kansas City and, and Tampa Bay – is that where we should be or should, should we back things off a little bit in terms of evaluating what needs to happen for the Cowboys next year? Well, you know, I back and you go green Bay and Buffalo who are two teams in the NFC championship game compared Dallas defensively to either one of those teams can either, you know, maybe they could get up close to what green Bay is defensively, but I doubt it. Uh, no way they can get to where Buffalo is defensively. So now step back to the divisional round. You know, I mean, that's how you have to do it and keep going back. And so the, the, the top four teams, it, it's difficult to envision Dallas getting up to that level uh, right now with any of them. So this is, yeah. a, it's a process. I mean, we're, we're looking at a, at a building process here, not a one-year turnover. Well, I don't think it's a one-year deal, but I will say this. The NFL is a year-to-year proposition. We see teams come and go. Uh, we saw the Rams come and go, right? Uh, and uh, they got rid of the quarterback. They just got rid of the quarterback who took them to the Super Bowl two years ago. Yeah, but so, they went to the divisional round. <laughs> they did. You know? They did. And and, I, and listen, and, and he's got some real defensive players. He's got Aaron Donald. He's got the greatest defensive tackle in the history of football. So, you know – 
yes, I, I think you, that the Cowboys do need more players on defense. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I think that the, what Jerry has talked himself into believing is that we've moved into a – it's kind of like the greatest show on turf years with, when Saint, when the Rams were in St. Louis and they had this tremendous offense and then that this is all you really need to be. You're just going to be so good on offense, you're just going to outscore everybody 45 to 42, you know. So uh, I, I think what we saw is that uh, – you know, they couldn't even do that then. Dak was put before he got hurt. He was putting up, you know, record numbers uh, and and they still weren't winning. Uh, and because of the defense was so bad, I, you know, I have a hard time. I have a hard time being too critical of, of this idea that they can win again. When, in fact, last year, same basically the same players uh they weren't great on defense but they were at least average you know they they weren't awful that was uh i think the what the you know under rod marinelli i think they were the 11th ranked defense in the league somewhere in their 11th 15th somewhere in there i, I don't think that this is a, a team that needs to be uh it, it's not going to be the level of uh Tampa Bay's defense, what it was this year. No, they're not going to be that next year. They they need two or three drafts uh, of really good drafts uh, to get to reach that level, and and that and that means that you've got all your defensive guys have worked out, and that's not what their history is. In the last ten years, we give Will McClay all the credit in the world of turning around these Cowboys drafts, which he because he, he certainly has. They had far more success in the last decade than they've had in the last 25 years uh, under the, you know, him running these drafts. But in the first round, they simply have not had much success uh, when they've taken defensive players. And if you look back, if they'd kept Byron Jones, if, if, uh, um, you know, Leighton Vander Esch had not had so many injury uh, problems and you're going all the way back to Mo Claiborne was the other defensive player they took in the first round of the draft and, and then Taco Charlton you know those were uh, either botched picks on defense or those were guys who for whatever reason they, they, they let Byron Jones go he certainly was a success story but they let him go and then Leighton's been hurt all the time you know if you if those if you still had those four guys and then if they had worked out like the offensive guys worked out, like the offensive linemen they drafted in the, in the last 10 years uh, and C.D. Lamb, those have all been big splash hits, right? You know, Travis Frederick, you know, uh, 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 that, that's been a, a Zach Martin. Those have been terrific picks, which have really worked out well. If they'd gotten the same success level out of those defensive players, those guys would all still be playing here now or should be playing here now. That was a mistake of Jerry Jones letting – Byron Jones go, you know, he's not getting interceptions. So he just shouldn't let him go. go. There really wasn't much of a discussion. It was yeah. like, it was like, yeah. no, we're not going to pay him. He, he's going to be more than we want to pay. So just let him go. How could that not be a serious discussion in the organization? And, and again, I, you know, you pointed to how they weren't that bad defensively, you know, the previous season, maybe not statistically, but that team lost eight of its last 13 games and finished eight and eight. I mean, this is a team in back-to-back -back years. It's eight and eight and six and ten. Um, yeah, I don't know. How I, much I, I, think, put I think there's more lifting that needs to be done here than than people. Uh, you know, I get, it's it's still staggering to me that this team hadn't been to the playoffs in back-to-back -back years in as long as they have. The last time, the only time, was under Chan Gailey. In the yeah. early 2000s. That's the only time in the last 25 years they've been to back-to-back -back playoff. I mean, it's just – so it's not just the fact they're not getting beyond the divisional round. 
they're not putting themselves in the conversation enough to break through and get beyond the divisional round. You can't go to the playoffs every other year, which is what they've done since 2001, 2000, 2000. You can't go every other year and say, oh, well, you know, this year we'll, we'll you've got to build towards something. And you, you're mentioning the Rams. I mean, the Rams got to the divisional round this year, you know, and, and got rid of their quarterback. And that is why, you know, and what Evan was saying earlier, how polarizing Dak Prescott is now, you know, people won't even listen to a discussion on Dak Prescott. Now it, it's devolved into you're either on team Dak or you're not, and you're all against them or you're all for them. And there's no in between. There's no, you can't have a discussion to say that, okay, well, you know, he's had a lot to do with some of these losses because of the turnovers he's had early in games. Yes, he's wound up with great numbers at the end, but what about those two interceptions in the first three quarters that put him behind by 21 points? So I'm not saying he's the problem, but he hasn't lifted this team above its talent level either, which is another uh, priority of a guy you're going to pay that sort of money to. So it really is a valid discussion. And he was in the same quarterback class as Carson Wentz and Jared Goff. Philly's trying to move on from Wentz. L.A. has already moved on from Goff. So why is this not a discussion? Why can you not even talk about it in the context of where the team is? And I, I think it's that sort of thing that, that has really kind of held the, the Cowboys back. I mean, everything is a... a an either or all in or all out proposition. And, and there's, it's, it's, it's more nuanced than that. Well, to, to me, the problem with the Cowboys has always been, and, and we have rarely seen it is that Jerry falls in love with stars. Uh, he, he did this in the nineties. Uh, you know, he, he tried to reward all his stars. He gave uh, second contracts to Daryl Johnston, a fullback. You know, you ought to be able to find a fullback anytime you want to. You, you, I don't. He was a really good fullback, but he's a fullback. You know, it's not a vital position on the field. You know, uh, and and what we found is that I can remember when 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 Jerry let Demarcus Ware go. Uh, I thought, well, this is a hard thing to do because this guy's been a star, a defensive star. He's a Hall of Famer, but I really feel like he's just kind of lost a little bit. Well, he goes to Denver, and then he's juiced up for a couple more years, right? And it looks like at that point, Jerry finally makes a decision when you feel like it's the right decision to make. That You know, you don't need to give any more money to this guy, and then he, he has a little bit left. Now, it doesn't mean it was the wrong decision. The, the, the Dodgers used to do that all the time. The Dodgers used to trade guys uh, in, the, in the 70s uh, b- before they were actually done. But they, but they knew that they only had a little bit left. And so they were trying to move on to something else. If you, if you consistently make those kind of decisions and you're making the correct decisions, then that's, that's good. That's, that's a good way to be. Uh, the problem with the Cowboys in my estimation and Jerry's biggest problem is when they find somebody they really like, they do have a tendency to hold on to those people. And then, and then at, at the expense of being, being able to find enough guys to fill in every place else that you need. Uh, if, if you look at the chiefs and you look at the bucks in this game, it's not like that. These lineups are full of stars. They're not full of stars. They, they've got a few stars sprinkled in and around, but they've got a lot of really good, solid players playing. Otherwise, the problem for me with the Cowboys, yeah, there are no stars on the defense. We're, we've already established that other than Demarcus Lawrence, that's it. You know, nobody else, but Donovan 
Wilson did have a nice season in about a half season this year. I'd be, I like to see what he can do going forward. If he can really kind of pick up on that and stay healthy. He's a big hitter. Maybe be hard for him to stay healthy, but see what he can do going forward. Uh, you know, Leighton Vander Esch and both Jalen Smith have both been stars before they both, they both made the pro bowl. So I'd like to see what they can do going forward. I don't know what they can have, but the problem is, is that you start in that defensive line in that defensive tackle. The Cowboys haven't had a great defensive tackle in forever, you know, and, and to me, that's a that's a real issue there. They need somebody up front there who's going to do something. We uh, we were discussing before the show this year. Let, let's take a Dominican Sue, who's available now, who's not the player he used to be, not the player who decimated Texas in the Big Twelve Championship game in two thousand nine. But he's but he's still a very good player. To give you an example, he had fifty quarterback pressures this year as a defensive tackle. I, I believe that Antoine Woods had two. You know, that is a tremendous difference uh, between those two, that that kind of uh, production and output. That's what, you know, to me, quarterback pressures are more important than sacks because sacks can be kind of fluky. But if you're showing you're getting consistent pressure on a quarterback, then this is what you got to have. You got to be hurrying these guys. And if you're doing that from the interior, that's even better. So. I, I do feel like if they could go out and and uh, and make a signing like it doesn't have to be Sue, but if they can go out and make it a signing in the defensive tackle, that's you know last year that was a disaster, you know with the, with McCoy, Gerald McCoy and Don Terry Poe, both of those uh, flipped. You don't think uh, Don Terry Poe worked out? No, I, I don't think, think it was better than Don Terry Poe. Is that what no, you're saying? No, so I think the whole the whole thing with Don Terry Poe, he, he wasn't kneeling; he just couldn't get up. You know, that, that was Don Terry Poe's problem. Uh, you know, and ha-ha Clinton Dix, you know, the, the, uh, making that signing had nothing left. You know, you, you can't have that many busts uh, on your defense, on, on your free agent signing. The Cowboys have it just have, have not been. Now you're advocating to go out and sign more defensive players. Well, busted. You can't, I know. <laughs> what Let are me, you going to do? You can't quit. <laughs> you can't quit just because it didn't work. Uh, but because the, the, they're not going to be able to add enough players in the draft. Let's no, face it. Not. You know, especially in the, in the defensive line. You know, uh, defensive ends, defensive tackle, unless they're just unbelievable talents, it is really difficult for those guys to come in and be really productive right away as rookies uh, it just it's the game is so much bigger and stronger and, and uh it's just difficult for those guys to get come in and really be dominant type players you have to be a top five top 10 kind of pick to make that kind of impact and they're you not going to more as an example you know wasn't even yeah. active early in the season with an interior line that wasn't playing well and still oh. wasn't active finally got on you know i had a few good games but it was very erratic it showed a little something by the end of the season um, but, but that's it just physically, uh, just, just was overwhelmed on the interior in there just didn't have the strength. And, and you're right, unless you get that position early, uh, very few can, can plug in and play and, and make a positive impact. And there's, I will say there's no one on the interior of the defensive line, uh, that fits that this year. Uh, it, it, it is going to be more of a, well, this is, will be a nice guy. He can help you as part of the rotation, maybe start for you before the season is over, you know, maybe be a good solid guy for you going forward. But there aren't any players viewed like in Dominican Sue when he came out or Aaron Donald or, or uh, 
Fletcher Cox are the most dominant defensive tackles that have come through in recent years. Uh, even Vita Vea, who, who you saw in that Tampa Bay uh, defensive front the other day, which, uh, you know, the Cowboys uh, really latched on to uh, Leighton Van Der Esch in that draft and really weren't that interested in Vita Vea. So, I mean, yeah, it's uh, I, I do think how they view defensive tackle and safety is going to be different now with Dan Quinn, but we'll have to see how it materializes here in this offseason. Yeah, they got it. You know, I, I do think you could add a safety. Uh, that's not, it's not a real strong safety draft. Um, uh, uh, Richie Grant from uh, UCF, uh, he, you know, he is considered one of the better ones that you could probably get in the second or third round. You know, I would like to see them do something like that. I'd like to see them go. You know, it, it does. You know, they need to take that cornerback, whichever one is available at ten. If if uh, Caleb Farley, uh, you know, if Patrick Sertain are are, are available at ten, Warner Bow should be there at ten. I mean, they, it would be they, hard to envision a scenario where they're not. They simply have to do that. They've got too many questions at, at cornerback now. Too many guys are available. You know, they have to move on. So uh, they have to make that pick then. And uh, uh, I, I think that they, you know, they need to have a big draft. There's no question about it. They have to have a draft where you end up with by getting three starters out of it, maybe immediately on defense, you know, uh, if, if uh, certainly two. I, I think the first two guys that they take – Better be guys that uh, end up starting for one starters. Yeah. I agree. All right. Uh, so let's talk about uh, w- what else has been going on. Lately. We had a big trade uh, the other day, uh, kind of a sad trade in a lot of ways, but it was something that had to happen. Uh, Elvis Andrews went to the Oakland A's of all teams. Uh, and in this exchange, they got uh, Chris Davis, who has been a real Rangers killer. I would say uh, he would be second only uh, to Kyle Seeger over the years, a guy that was uh, just seemed like always uh, getting big hits against the Rangers. Uh, and uh, and then also the Rangers got a couple of prospects in the deal. They sent uh, $13.5 million to Oakland. And somehow, if you do the math, and this is why uh, we're constantly uh, having the trouble with the IRS, uh, that actually supposedly saves the, the uh, Rangers money. I don't know how these kind of things work. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, that's that's what's happening here. Basically, the Rangers were doing it. Um, I'd like to think that part of the thinking of this was that uh, Elvis can go to Oakland and uh, and maybe have a shot at starting there to reply, replace Marcus Simeon, who was uh, signed by uh, Toronto. Uh, and it'd be nice for Elvis to, to get that chance to do that. I think the real reason to do it is that uh, that gives them, I think as Evan explained it, seven and a half million dollars next year uh that they can play with uh, when they would be out trying to find a replacement so evan let's let's talk about that well i saves is especially where my checking account is concerned is 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 such a hard to define word um <clears throat> but essentially what this does is is it shoves a bunch of the financial commitment that would have gone to elvis over two years into this first year um, and, and so with a really low payroll, they can cover all of that this year. And then next year they've got, they've got $7 million less on the books when there's going to be a much bigger free agent class out there. And when it's going to be time for the Rangers to start to get active again. Um, I, I think that this trade needed to be made partly because it does, uh, there, there's some net amount of, of, freedom created for for next year but more importantly 
this team just needed to turn the page and and acknowledge that the ghosts of the past didn't need to be sitting on the bench staring over the shoulder of of where they're at right now um they've got it's further complicated by having two guys in that position with Elvis Andrus and, and Rignet Odor. Uh, and this gave them an opportunity to get a couple of young players with in, involved in that deal that might potentially pay some dividends down the road. It, I don't look at this trade as Elvis Andrus for Chris Davis. I, I just don't think that that where the Rangers are concerned and what you're thinking about for the Rangers Chris Davis's presence factors in in any way, shape, or form long-term. He's going to be there. He's there. He's on the books for this year and this year only. Um, he'll go to camp with a chance to compete for a job. Won't be surprised if he, if he ends up in a platoon DH spot. But let me just tell you, as we talked about before the show, Kevin, when you're platooning DHs and that's all they can do, that's, that's not a good situation to be in. Um, but it's not about what Chris Davis brings to this team. It's it's all about what happens in 22 and 23. It's harder and harder for Rangers fans to stomach, but everything that they've done this winter has at least lined up with that plan. All right, now tell me a little bit about Heim, the catcher that they got from the uh, from Oakland, because I think what they envision is that the, if there's a player who came out of this for the Rangers uh, that they had the highest hopes for, it would be him, right? Well, they, they like Acker, the pitcher, too. I think they had Acker on their board to take in the fifth round before Oakland took him last year, and Oakland gave him about a half million dollars in, in signing bonus. So essentially part of – you could also look at part of this money going to Oakland as saying they were buying an extra draft pick from last year. Um, Heim is 25. Uh, he gives the Rangers another option to go along with Jose Trevino this year um, for a young catching duo. And he's, he's a switch hitting catcher uh, who, who is apparently a good receiver and, and is very well thought of. And I, I don't think there's any guarantees that Jose Trevino is your long-term answer here. He's going to get the, the chance this year. I think the, the thought has always been that Sam Huff would be the long-term answer, but you can't have enough catching, especially with, with how volatile that position is. And, and so if you're able to add a 25-year-old catcher here that gives you more depth uh, and potentially gives you uh, long-term platoon ability, then that's, that's about as good as you can do here. I want to say just one thing about Chris Davis, uh, and that is um, uh, I, I, do, I could envision a role for him. If Willie Calhoun were not on this club, I could envision a role for uh, – um, Chris Davis, in which he hits behind Joey Gallo. Um, he protects Joey a little bit, and and maybe he sits. And by all accounts, and and, and certainly Evan, we we read about this. I I've never talked to Chris Davis before, but by everything you read about him, is he's a really super guy. Just a great teammate, really nice guy. I thought it was very interesting the fact that he does not do social media. He feels like uh, if you're always a slave to your phone, you kind of lose touch with being a human being which, you know, you don't see that a lot from uh, younger people today. So I thought it was very nice that he had that attitude. Uh, but um, I, like, like we said, I just don't see how he fits. I, you know, I know there's even some speculation. Well, maybe you could keep him around and he gets hot and then you could flip him. Well, you're not going to be able to flip a DH uh, for anything. You're not going to get anything for him. So it, it, 
you might get the equivalent again of, of buying a mid-round draft pick somewhere down the road. But yeah, you're not going to get anything significant for him. No. So I just don't see much, much future in, in, in that uh, part of it. Let me ask you this about Sam Huff, because I've always been intrigued by this. You know, Sam had what, 31, 32 at bats last year? Yeah. That's a, yeah, five home runs. Was that what it was? Three. Three home runs. Okay, sorry. Three home runs. Now, look, I'm, we always love the baseball extrapolate, right? Boy, he, you know, that's that means he's going to hit 60 home runs over the course of a, of a full season. Uh, he, he's not doing that. But let me ask you this. Uh, uh, there's questions about uh, he's got a great arm. There's no question about that. Questions about him as a receiver. Little, he's a big guy. Kind of makes it a little difficult back there to begin with. He starts off a little bit of a negative because of that. Not a not a great receiver. Doesn't always set up well uh, back there. I don't know how he works with pitchers. I don't know about that at all. Uh, but if he were, you know, obviously the the value is much greater at, at catcher. It, it always is. Just like if you're a shortstop who can hit, a center fielder can hit, a catcher who can hit then your value is tremendous uh, as opposed to playing other positions and getting the same production. But considering all the problems the Rangers have had at first base, would it be so bad if Sam Huff, when he wasn't playing, you know, if he's not catching every day, playing over at first base? I, I Listen, I think that's always in the back of the mind, but I think also the, the, the prevailing school of thought has been exactly what you just said, Kevin. Offensively, his numbers profile great at catcher, much more along the lines of average at first base. But certainly if you get more than you expected from Jose Trevino or Jonah Heim, uh, that, that possibility becomes more realistic down the road. Uh, I mean, if he's going to hit 40 home runs. If he's got that, potential to hit forty, if he's got the potential to hit forty home runs, I don't know that anybody thinks of him as a forty home run hitter in the big leagues. I think they think I, I, of him as as a twenty five to thirty home run hitter. Well, I tell you what, I, I watched him at at the plate last year. That was very impressive. Uh, he hit the ball hard. Uh, impressive last year after he came up was if you looked at his first ten at bats, um, you thought there's no chance that this guy's ever going to make contact that he has. <laughs> He has no shot in the big leagues. And what Sam did really, really well on the fly with no minor league experience last year to speak of and making a huge jump was he made adjustments in his swing on the fly in the last two weeks of the season. That for me was a real, real plus. And if it, if he's the kind of hitter who's able to make adjustments quickly, hit pitter, pitchers are never going to stay terribly in front of him. Um, and we'll see where the power plays out. Look, if the power does play out and extrapolates to 40 home runs, you can play him where, you know, you can definitely play him at first base. Sure. If it doesn't, then, you know, look, there is a lot of swing and miss in his game. Uh, and, and if he's not great when it comes to the walks, then all of a sudden you're doing the same, you're, you're in the same boat you are with, with a Ronald Guzman from the left side or, or, or whatever there that, Hey, there's a lot of potential but it does, it, it, it's, it's still not panning out to what we need for numbers for that kind of position. Okay. All right. I, I think, look, I, to your point, I think where the Rangers are right now in, in Addingheim only gives them that much more in terms of potential options down the road. There's nobody right now that's making plans for Sam Huff to move over to first base, but certainly that possibility does remain uh, in play. 
Yeah, I, I think at some point you have to decide. We just need to get this guy's bat in the lineup, especially a right-handed power bat. That's such a rarity uh, in the big leagues today. So, all right, let's, boys, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, the Mavericks. Um, uh, they've been all over the map here in this season. They started out uh, and and hung what like a forty-point win over the Clippers. Uh, they look like this team is really raring to go and then COVID hit uh, the Mavericks uh, like a ton of bricks and they were and they missed uh, had four players who were in their rotation nearly half the rotation was out for 10 days uh, team really struggled a lot of uh, a lot of games in a very short amount of time uh, because of the way the NBA is trying to cram these games all in uh, they went into a tailspin and they got the guys back they were back a few days. I was cutting them some slack for all of that. Uh, and then, uh, they, they lost a game, uh, uh, last week, uh, the first of back to back and got beat by, uh, golden state, which is not a very good golden state team at this time. It still has Steph Curry clearly. Uh, but they were down to nine players, not one of them over six, seven, and they got beat by 37 points, uh, which was just outrageous uh, to watch that, that game and how poorly the Mavericks played in that. And just every phase of the game, they were terrible. Uh, and then it didn't make any it didn't make it any better that that was a nationally t- telecast game on TNT, and we got to listen to Charles Barkley and Shaquille O'Neal uh, and and basically Kenny Smith too. All talk about what in the world is the matter with Chris Tapps Porzingis? This is not the guy that the Mavericks traded for with the Knicks. Uh, and, uh, and of course, they've made these complaints before, and then people call uh, Shaq and Chuck uh, dinosaurs for thinking that, you know, you're going to – you want these guys to play like they like centers did in the 80s. And, and their point was, we're not saying that at all. Uh, we don't mind him uh, shooting threes, but if you've got a mismatch, uh, that's just NBA 101. Uh, if you've got a, you know, seven-inch mismatch with another guy – you take him to the basket. That's just what you do. You don't you don't just stand out at the three point line and shoot over him. So then we see and I, now, I, and I don't want to overreact to this, but uh, they uh, they beat uh, Minnesota last night. They were up twenty five points on them at one point and ended up having to scramble to win uh, by five at the very end. Uh, but in that game, KP played. I thought his best game certainly since the bubble last year. Uh, uh, but I. I think I, in some ways I liked it better than what he was doing in the bubble because he was taking the ball to the basket. He was very aggressive. He had six blocks in that game, very aggressive defensively for sure. Uh, he just looked like uh, like he was completely healthy for one thing. Well, can he, can he do it more than one game occasionally? Absolutely. Can he yeah. do it consistently? And that's, you know – Players can do this for a game, but if it's out of their nature and out of their comfort zone, you, you don't do you don't see it game in and game out. And then the frustration level even grows because it's, well, he can do this. Why isn't he doing it again? Um, he's an outside player. He needs to incorporate more inside to his game to take advantage of these mismatches. Um, but, you know, he, he's got to be able to do both. And, the thing is, if you go inside, there are more sacrifices to your body. It's harder to do. It requires more effort. It's more force over the course of a game. And some players just aren't willing to give that. And uh, when you look at him and his health concerns, I, I think Dallas has probably been reluctant to 
say, look, no, be a little, you know, let's get down in there. Let's, let's de design some sets for you uh, on the block. Uh, not a lot because you're not that sort of player, but we can do things. We can get you the ball down there facing where you can still like put it on the floor and go or whatever. Um, but I mean, to me, that's the thing. See it one game against one of the few teams in your conference that is behind you. Okay, that's nice. Let's see it against the top teams in the league and let's see it over a week. Let's see it over a two week period. And we haven't seen that he can sustain that. No, we haven't. Uh, I will say this. I think he has been put in a position where the Mavericks were convinced that, uh, and he talked about this last year, they, they want me to, you know, they want me to shoot a lot of threes. We want him to shoot, you know, eight, nine threes a game, you know, uh, which is, you know, about twice as many as he was shooting uh, in New York. And I think sometimes when a guy feels like this is what they want me to do, He's not taking advantage of the other things that he might normally have done. Like, and, and as it was pointed out, you know, if you watch that, uh, the, the Golden State game, uh, the first one, uh, the embarrassing one, uh, was that uh, he, there were a couple of times where Steph Curry was gardening and he, and he merely just passed off. It's like, come on. I mean, you got a foot advantage over this guy. You know, you, you, you get this, you have to know this is when you have to be aggressive. So this is going to, you know, to me going forward with the Mavericks, this is the, the eternal discussion. Now is KP, even when he's healthy, is he really a number two or is he the number three? And, and do you still need the number two? I I'm on the side of saying, however good he plays, because you think he's probably only going to be available on the average 60 to 65 games a year just because of the, you're trying to manage his knees or the injuries that he's having, you can't count on him as the number two. He has to be the number three. And that's why I think the Mavericks are struggling now because unless they get – even when they get production from him and Doncic both, you still need a, the third guy. And, and, and Tim Hardaway occasionally is that guy, uh, but I don't think you can count on him to be that either night in and night out. I think he is better off the bench. It's kind of hard to ask a guy off the bench to come up with 20, 25 points a night. So uh, I think they still are short that second uh, wheel. They, they, they need one more guy. Well, this season, it has to be Przingis. They don't have any other option, whether he's going to be out or not, whether they limit his minutes. They need to find out now just what can he assume that role. And uh, I'm not saying you push him beyond his physical bounds, you know, that, that makes no sense, but, but he needs to be pushed up to, I mean, you need to see how much you can get on this guy, you know, week in and week out. Is he going to be a guy where if you have four games in a week, he's always going to miss one. Um, okay. Well, you know, what? you can plan for that, but those other three games, you know, he needs to have the sort of game he had against Minnesota. He needs to be that sort of player. He needs to be essential. I mean, he, you can't every, every game, you can't have him coming back after sitting out a game and then wondering whether or not he's your second option. Uh, no, when he's in there, he's your second option and he needs to produce at a, at a 20 point, you know, he needs to be a, a 29, uh, a 20 and nine guy, you know, uh, pretty consistently. And, um, if he's not, then that tells you what you need to do going forward. But, you know, you at least I have to come out of this season knowing that. I mean, you can't go into this season going, oh, well, is he where does he fit going forward? Is he really this guy or that guy? Um, you've had him long enough now. You, you've seen how he works with, um, you know, Doncic that that you need to make this. And look, the other part, part of it is 
they gave up a lot of offensive firepower and they knew they were doing it to try to improve defensively. One, they hasn't, they haven't improved defensively yet. Two, that just puts a more of a premium on Porzingis needing to score because you lost the offensive firepower you had last year. So he really, uh, he's got to be what they envision him to be. And if he's, if he's not, then you make determinations at the end of this season on how you proceed. I, th- I think one of the things we need to look at here is, as well as, uh, as obviously Doncic has played, and he's an MVP caliber type player. I'm, I'm wondering how much of this going forward I mean, because we look at Josh Richardson and what he's done. I, like in the game last night against Minnesota, getting close here. He, uh, Josh gets the ball, goes into the lane, makes a nice little shot. He's kind of a a, a nifty kind of scorer to me. He's 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 not really the, he's not a three the 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 second guy or the third guy, but I like him. But I don't see enough of that yet, and and I wonder if if it feels like to me. That uh, that Luca dominates the ball so much, and and and, and rightfully so in, in a lot of ways. Who else do you want to have the ball in this situation? I, I do feel like though that it is taken far longer for KP to be the player I thought he was going to be in, in concert with Luca. I thought because they're both European players, they're used to sharing the ball uh, over there, very you know uh, team oriented, that kind of thing. Uh, I, I've been surprised by that, so I'm, I'm interested to see going forward when the Mavericks, you know, after this year and when uh, they hope to add another guy that they would uh, uh, be, you know, in a position to uh, when they get somebody else, how is he going to flourish in this offense with, with Luca? Do they, do they need somebody else who can handle the ball more, you know, to, to allow Luca to be off the ball some and not have to be on it so much? You know, these are interesting questions for me going forward about who they're going to pursue and exactly what kind of player they want. Well, and I think another thing is hurt him too, beyond just the, uh, the, the way this season has been chopped up and, and because of the, the players they've missed with, with COVID and how that's impacted the rotation is the way Rick coaches. You know, Rick, Rick, Rick has guys, he, he a, lo- a lot of coaches will set everybody in a specific role and put it on autopilot for the rest of the season. And everyone gets comfortable in that role know what time they're coming in, know when they're going out, there's a routine, and then that helps build the chemistry. Rick isn't necessarily that way. Rick Carlisle is, okay, no, you're going to be like a 25, 28-minute guy for me tonight. You may not play the next night. Well, I think that has hurt the, Cal- that has hurt the Mavericks during this process because – um, it makes it even harder to get into a rhythm. Your, your rotations are different every single night when you haven't had a chance to really practice them and play with this group of guys. So I think it's all come together now. You see explanations on why they've been so far behind, but now you have to step back and look at it because you're getting to the point of the season where if you don't start to play better soon, you're going to play your way out of it. And then you look up at the end of the year, if this team doesn't make the playoffs, how do you justify that? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think Rick Carlisle has to take a hard step back here too and go, okay, what I'm doing right now is the way we're going to do it, you know, next year and going forward. But can I continue uh, to go forward this way this season? And, and, is, and is that what is best for this team? Yeah, I'm, I'm not convinced that, uh, that Przingis – uh, is in love with what they're asking him to do. I think mm-hmm. he's the kind of guy, you know, 
Yeah, you, you bet. I'll do what you tell me to do. But, you know, we, we see in Luca the, how losing eats at him, you know, and when things aren't going well, we, it, the emotion is just right there. He's there's 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 no trans. It, he's, he's completely transparent well, with Luca. I mean, or with KP, you, when they got beat by 37 points, say, oh, yeah, we can't do this. You know, we got to get better. We'll be better. It's, it'll be all right. It does, it, and I, I'm not saying that the losing doesn't bother him. I, I'm saying that. I, I don't get the sense that he feels like this is all on me. You know, I, 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 you know, because we lost wasn't because I played a terrible game. You know, it's because of things out of my control. Uh, and I may be reading too much into that, but I, I just feel like that there are there are things that they're going to have to ask going forward. And and you know, uh, let's face it. You know, this is going to be what the Mavericks hope is. That this is going to be Lucas' team for a long time you know, 10 or 15 years. And, and so they're, they're going to do everything possible to make this work for Luca. And, and, you know, I, we know how much they love Rick Carlisle. Donnie Nelson told me we want him to, to, you know, to be our Jerry Sloan. We want him to be our, our coach forever. And, and, and I think that's true. And I think they still want that. But if, if Luca and Rick can't get this thing on the same page with, and and everything else around it to make it all really work, well, then we know who's going to win that deal. No question. All right, let's let's uh, one uh, last thing we want to uh, talk about before we get out of here is uh, Jordan Spieth, who seemed to put everything together last week. Had shot a sixty-one on Saturday, uh, and then just kind of fell apart on Sunday, which is like out of bound on the first tee on the first. Yeah, the next not, thing. not exactly the way you want to start off on Sunday, is it? Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I will say this. So I was encouraged. At least he got himself in the top five, which is something he didn't do all last year. So uh, this is uh, it was a step forward for him. And I, I'm glad to see that there are times on Saturday. You, you first of all, you shoot a 61. That's that's that's. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, and I, he, he dropped some long putts. And, of course, that's what he was really doing uh, when he was winning all the time. Uh, but now the, the the drought is still, what, three and a half years? Uh, three and that, a half, yeah. That's a long time uh, for a, a guy who was showing as much as he did. And I have to say, what always impressed me about Jordan in the middle of all of that uh, was his confidence that to scramble. Uh, I'm going to put this back together again. Wheels kind of came off here. No big deal. I, here I go. I'm going to pick it back up. And that's what he would do. Uh, because I don't think that Jordan is the most physically gifted uh, golfer on the tour. Uh, you know, he's not a big hitter. He, you know, uh, but he is a guy uh, who I felt like mentally was really in control. And I feel like what happened was, and this happens so many, so often, you know, in sports and especially in, in golf. Now we've seen this a lot in golf in the last 20 years is that guys have been successful their whole lives. Uh, they beat, they beaten everybody they ever play. They get in the pros and they, they expect to do the same thing. And that works. Uh, and it works for a while. And then when they, they encounter some difficulty, uh, they start to think, oh, my gosh, this is the first time in my life I've never not won. What's what's going on here? And I think it's difficult to get that kind of confidence level back uh, once you've lost it. Well, and this in Phoenix, it was the the example of that in my mind, too, because you, you have that great round in the third round. You talk about the freedom it gives you, how you're working through some things. And now you feel that, what you know, all your practice is starting to pay off and you it's very clear from the start you know you're not you're not going to win on the final day you just make 
you make too many mistakes too early. He's he's still not ready to win a tournament yet. I, I think he is he's capable of producing some good rounds, but he's not back to the point mentally where he can build off of that and say, you know, he you just don't start the way he did on Sunday. If you have a 61, uh, if you're really building off that mentally, you're just going, okay, now this is it. I am back over the hump. I'm here. I'm winning this thing. Uh, you don't give it, you don't <laughs> give it away as quickly as he did in that final round. If you're ready to really take the next step. So now that's playing on him. I mean, you know, I, I think even more, you have this great round, but then how did you respond to it? Yeah. Uh, like you said, he, he was still able to stay in the top five and that is improvement. And, and you can step back and you can rationalize all that and go, it's a step forward. It's better than what he did. He, you know, uh, again, a, a one over on the final day isn't horrible. Um, but when everyone else is going, you know, four and five under on that final day, well, you're not giving yourself a chance to win. And so he knows while he's still capable of this, when he's in position to win on the final day, he can't. So that's still playing with him too. And he, he's got to get over that. So it's not just about throwing out uh, a 61 or, or going into the final day with a lead. He's done that over the last three and a half years. But look at all of his rounds on the fourth day when he's had a lead or he's been within one stroke of the lead. And uh, it, it's, it's not good. I mean, he's, he still has some work to do, no question. Yeah, he does. And it's unfortunate, you know, that uh, it requires that thing. I, I just feel like, you know, we see this with older golfers. Uh, you know, you, I, you know, when uh, you'd see somebody come back and, uh, and and they might be leading in a, in a tournament after after one day or maybe after two days. The problem is, is that those old guys can still they still have the skill set to to put up a really great round to hang a really nice number for one day the problem is doing that four days in a row sure you know that's just and that and that's the same thing that's happening right now with uh with jordan is that he's just having a hard time putting together four days in a row like that that just takes so much will in my mind to do that and i think he he had that and he's just lost it and uh he's starting to tinker with things now and uh and i and of course you have to do that he switched over to butch Harmon. his is uh i, I guess he switched over to, to butch i he was going to go talk to him and and uh and i think that's probably a good move uh and i, I like to see how that works out because he's certainly a guy who's helped a lot of golfers uh, over the years um but uh, I, I, you know, it, this is this is going to be continue to be a, be a process to see what he does here at this point in his career. If he didn't break through and won one this year, then you're looking at a David Duvall sort of descent where, you know, where where does he go? Can he ever reclaim it? I mean, you've got the, the longer you go, the less likely it is you're going to break out of it. Well, you hate to hear that David Duvall. Boy, people don't remember him when he was great. They just when he was great. Just remember what happened. Uh, yeah. yeah, he was great. There's no question. Well, you know, uh, Justin Leonard was a little bit of the same thing. Uh, mm -hmm. Guy who had a nice career. Is that what Jordan's going to end up being? Uh, guy with a couple, of, you know, majors. Well, he's already had a nice career. He has you know. a nice. He has had a nice career already. If he quit right now, that's absolutely right. It's just that people were projecting a lot more than that based on what he'd done that. And uh, at the very start of his career. All right. Well, that's going to do it for our uh, podcast uh, today. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we will be back next week uh, and talk about uh, to more more junk. 
uh, lots of junk. I, I think that's a great uh, kind of uh, more added. junk. Is that going to be the new? Yeah, we got we we can talk about all kinds of junk. We can ask Evan if he's had four good days in a row, and if so, when was the last time? Sometime before January twenty fifth, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I love that the, the meme that was making the rounds over the weekend. They said that uh, for the Super Bowl, uh, not to have uh, a party with with, with people with, uh, who have eight or more people with issues. And they said, and uh, a lot. Of the response was, "I don't even ha- know people, eight people who no don't issues. have issues." <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I'd say the same thing. All right, that's going to do it. So we'll see you guys. Bye.